artificial intelligence in the NFL and developing countries, change management for ERP implementations, and lessons from ERP failures and lawsuits. Those are just a few of the topics we're going to cover here today in episode 160 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 160. My name is Eric Kimberling here at Darien Fiat Kusky. Darien, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Thanks for being here. We're excited for today's uh, today's episode. We've got a lot we're going to cover here today. Before I get to the topics we're going to co- cover here today, just a couple logistical things. First of all, this show is produced by Major Tom Productions and sponsored by Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage is an independent consulting firm that helps clients through their digital transformation journeys, including the digital strategy, software selection, and implementation components of their transformations. And that is the company that I'm also a CEO of. Uh, so thanks for, for joining us here today. And you can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday by going to transformationgroundcontrol.com. So be sure to check us out there. That gives you every platform that you can listen and watch on if you'd like. Go to transformationgroundcontrol.com for new episodes. You can also view the catalog of past episodes as well. So exciting show for you today. We're going to cover um, a couple of hot topics to begin, or actually a couple of audience questions to begin. Um, we'll, we'll get to some of the questions we received recently on social media, and then we'll get into a couple of hot topics related to artificial intelligence. Uh, one is artificial intelligence and how it's being used in the National Football League in the United States, as well as artificial intelligence in developing countries and how it's being used by developing countries. So um, if you're interested in seeing how AI is evolving in some specific use cases, uh, be sure to stick around for that. And then later in the show, we're going to talk about organizational change tips and lessons for ERP implementations. We're going to have Julia Joyce and Sarah Stanley Smith joining us, um, who are two change management consultants that have been part of the third stage consulting team over the years based out of the UK and Scotland, respectively. So we'll, we'll have both of them on the show to talk about change management in ERP implementations. And then we'll also uh, later in the show get into lessons from ERP failures and lawsuits. So be sure to stick around for that. But before we get to the rest of our show and some of the other guests, um, we, we've got some good audience questions that you've pulled for us here today, Darian. So what do you have? What do you have for us from the audience? Yeah, some good questions from our audience. So the first one is specifically pertaining to Infor and SAP for you, Eric. What are your thoughts on the complex processes of manufacturing? of the manufacturing sector or the supply chain pain areas and the ease of business with ERP solutions? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's for SAP and Infor, you said? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, well, if we look at S- SAP S4 HANA and, and Infor Cloud Suite, which are the two flagship products being used by, by both of those software vendors, um, S4 HANA has a lot of supply chain and manufacturing types of clients. Um, however, S4 HANA is a, a pretty large, robust system that can be good for big, complex organizations, but it can be overly complex for those 
organizations that might be mid-sized organizations or smaller organizations that don't have the same complexities. So that can be a little bit trickier um, on the SAP S4 HANA side. Um, Infor Cloud Suite oftentimes fits really well in the mid-market for manufacturing supply chain needs. Um, it's generally considered a more flexible system. But I, what I will say about Infor, one of the challenges is they've got um, they're still sort of working with a lot of their legacy systems to move it over to the cloud. So um, the Cloud Suite is how they've branded their flagship cloud ERP solution. But they still have, you know, Sightline and M3 and Bond and some of these older systems that are still being used on-prem and still being used by, by a lot of customers. And so Infor can be a little trickier sometimes to find the right solution just because it's sort of a – it's still a bit of a mix and match of different technologies um, as they complete their migration to the cloud and as they complete their migration to more of a single uh, platform under the cloud suite umbrella. Um, Having said that, going back to S4 HANA, S4 HANA has a similar challenge too in that uh, they have they have S4 HANA as sort of the core flagship ERP system, but then they've also got Ariba for procurement and they've got Concur for time and expense reporting and success factors for human capital management. So there's all these different third-party systems that SAP has acquired that they also require to provide a complete solution to their customers. So I think it, a lot of it depends on what you know, size and complexity you are, um, ultimately what the functionality is of each of these systems relative to your manufacturing supply chain needs. Um, if you've got pretty simple manufacturing and supply chain needs, I'd say, you know, Infor Cloud Suite might be a, a more um, right size solution, a more cost effective and a less risky solution to deploy. But if you're a larger complex organization and or if you're an existing SAP customer, it may make more sense to move towards the or go down the S4 HANA route. So that would be at a super high level without getting into the details of what exactly, um, the, you know, a specific manufacturing and supply chain need is. That, that'd be some of my initial comments there. Yeah, it's super insightful. Thanks, Eric. And then for our second question from the audience, it's about how to ensure success during your transformation. And if, Eric, you have any ideas for leaders who are stuck in choosing between a thoughtful and thorough approach versus a bio bias for action approach? Is it as easy include, as including your front line in all phases? Yeah, that's a good, good question. And, and uh, there's a there's a tricky balance that organizations and leaders need to follow here. I mean, on one hand, you have the need to be aggressive and move quickly and uh, meet your milestones and get the project the project done and completed on time and on budget. But on the other hand, you you want to make sure you're going in a, in a deliberate direction, in a thoughtful direction, that you've got a, a clearly defined strategy, that your strategy makes sense and is aligned with your overall uh, business goals and objectives. So I'd say it's a mix of both. I mean, I think I think there's a, there's a lot of danger in taking a bias to action early in a project. In other words, just jumping right in, just starting to go. I think that's where you get into trouble. I think you have to have a certain amount of um, kind of slowing down a little bit up front, slowing down to speed up later. Because if you slow down, put together a very thorough plan, you think through what it is you're trying to accomplish with your project, you make sure that your goals and objectives for the project are aligned with the goals and objectives of the company, you make sure your executive team's on board and on the same page with what the direction of the project is, you make sure your project team's on board, you get your change management team into place, you get your plan into place, you get the project team resources into place. All that stuff takes time. And if you start going too fast and taking that action to bias before you've done all that upfront phase zero planning uh, pieces of the project, 
you're just going to create a lot more problems and distractions and road bumps later on that will actually slow you down a lot more than the time it took you just to take to take some time to go slowly up front. It kind of reminds me a bit of the whole – there's a whole uh, debate going on in the industry around traditional waterfall software development where you, you define your business requirements up front, your full business requirements, and then you start rolling out uh, technology after that. And then that, that's the waterfall approach. The agile approach is just start building stuff, get reactions from people, and then modify and pivot as needed. And there's a movement towards agile because the waterfall approach is getting blamed for a lot of delayed and failed projects um, because it's taking so long for organizations to get business value. So the answer to that or a potential answer to that is to take an agile approach where we just start deploying technology really quickly for better or for worse, you test it out, you see how it works, you make adjustments on the fly, and you, you go forward. Um, I think there's an overcorrection right now where too many organizations are trying to use Agile as a way to solve the problem, which is we weren't aligned as a team, we had unrealistic expectations, we didn't manage change well. All these other things that have nothing to do with that waterfall versus Agile um, end up getting sucked into the conversation and, and confused uh, in the conversation. So I think that's a sort of a parallel similar discussion the whole agile versus waterfall it's the same mindset with executives on whether they should take the time up front to think things through have a deliberate plan have a solid plan have a solid baseline solid blueprint change management plan all that stuff then once you've done that and you've you've taken that thoughtful approach then you can shift into that action for bias and start executing and then and that's the time you want to shift gears and that's all that's hard for a lot of organizations and teams to recognize that there is a time and place to kick it into into overdrive, but it's not at the start of the project. It's usually after you've started moving out of the planning phase into the actual execution. Yeah, it's super interesting. So a little bit of a combination of both there, I guess. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so for the last question we have from the audience, it's from a cost perspective, is there a big difference between implementing SAP S4 HANA, Oracle Cloud ERP, or Microsoft D365? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I think, I mean, it does depend. I know I, I probably use that answer too often on this podcast, um, but it, but it does depend. I'd say it has the cost that you're going to invest in a project has less to do with the technology you deploy and more to do with who you are as an organization and how you run the project. So um, I've seen cases where, you know, you have D365 implementations that go way over budget and cost a lot more than it might have if they would have deployed S4 HANA, but it's not because D365 is just inherently more expensive. It's because in some cases, D365, for example, is so flexible that it gives you a lot of tools to to tailor and customize the software, to integrate to third parties, and do all this stuff that just takes extra time and money if you do those things. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can create distractions and budget overruns if you know because of that flexibility of the product. Um, so what is a strength of the product? product in Microsoft's case is flexibility that can lead to more um, time and cost overruns later. Same with SAP S4 HANA. I mean, S4 HANA is a bit more rigid and standardized, um, which is a strength of the software. That's why a lot of organizations deploy it. But that adds to the cost in many ways, because now you've got change management issues. It takes time to figure out what you want your processes to be from a consistent operating model perspective. And it, that adds time and cost to it, too. So you can kind of see how, yeah, the technology sort of influences time and cost, but more so it's, it's a matter of what the organization is doing and how they're, how they're deploying the technology. Yeah, makes sense. That was all of our questions today from the audience.
Yeah. Well, good. Well, those are great questions. And if you have uh, questions for us that you want us to cover on this podcast, uh, you can drop them in YouTube or LinkedIn, any of our social media platforms, any of our content we put out. Um, we're constantly looking for questions and topics to cover. So we appreciate uh, sort of the crowdsourcing of content here for for this podcast. Um, so we're going to shift gears and move out of question mode and, and get into a couple of uh, trending hot topics here in the digital transformation space. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence in the National Football League, as well as artificial intelligence in developing countries. So we're going to get into a couple case studies or use cases as it relates to AI. And then later in the show, stick around because we're going to talk about organizational change, best practices and tips for ERP implementations. We're going to have a couple of our guests from uh, the UK and Scotland joining us for that discussion. And then later in the show, we'll talk about lessons from ERP failures and lawsuits and some of the things that uh, we've learned from our expert witness practice and things that you can apply to your ERP or digital transformation initiative to make sure uh, you don't run into the same mistakes that others do. So uh, be sure to stick around. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling, and I'm the CEO and founder of Third Stage Consulting. Before we dive too far into today's content, I want to invite you to learn a little bit more about Third Stage Consulting, who we are and what we do. We help clients through their entire digital transformation life cycles, beginning with digital strategy, software evaluation and selection, all the way through and including implementation planning, implementation readiness, and the actual implementation itself. We're technology agnostic, so we only represent our clients' best interests. We do not represent software vendors. But having said that, we work very closely with software vendors, all the leading players that you can imagine we've worked with both in helping clients evaluate and select them, but also in helping clients implement those solutions as well. So we have a very broad objective agnostic view of the market that is meant to really represent your interest as you go through your digital transformation. I also encourage you to scan this QR code right here to get access to our resource center. This resource center has a ton of information, ton of eBooks that are free. You have access to top 10 software rankings, playbooks for how to make your project more successful guides to change management, YouTube videos, all kinds of stuff that are gonna help you through your digital transformation. So I encourage you to scan this QR code to get access to those resources. And please feel free to reach out to me directly to brainstorm ideas about your project. Even if it's just informally, you wanna bounce around some ideas and get some informal advice, I'd be happy to spend some time with you. So feel free to reach out to me. I've included my contact information below. You can also find it in the description field of this video as well. These things take time. Mom and dad, they have a good life, but what am I going to do with mine? Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 160. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also see the past episodes of this show at transformationgroundcontrol.com as well. And this is the podcast, by the way, that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation. So um, before we get to our first guest on the show, Darian, you had a couple of hot topics related to AI, which is always of interest to, to, to us, to you and I, and to the audience as well. So what, what have you got in store for us from a hot topic perspective? Yeah. So first is how the NFL National Football League is implementing artificial intelligence through its digital athlete platform. So basically, they developed a collaboration with Amazon Web Services. Amazon Web Services to enhance player safety by harnessing computer vision and machine learning. The digital athlete predicts plays and body positions prone to injury by drawing data from player RFID tags, 
optical tracking cameras, and other sources. This platform processes a vast amount of data to simulate game scenarios, identify injury risks, and tailor training programs for individual players. One notable rule change that the NFL has already implemented based on this digital digital athlete data, it aiming to reduce concussions and migrate injury risks during kickoff returns. The platform's overarching goal is to leverage this data-driven insights to inform decision-making, improve player safety, and enhance understanding of game dynamics. So, Eric, being a football fan yourself, what excites you or what are some thoughts you have about the league starting to implement AI for their players? Yeah, well, I think um, as you were describing this use case in this example of how the NFL is using AI, it sort of occurred to me as you were saying it that there's it's it's actually a really good place to start with AI because if you think about sports, um, first of all, you know, sports is about winning or losing. It's very binary, either or. Either you won or you lost. There's a score. There's stats behind it. Um, it's very measurable. And then when you look at player safety. Um, you can look at, you know, where a player got hit, how hard a player got hit, whether or not they actually got injured as a result. Um, so that's again, sort of black and white data sets that you can use to that AI models and algorithms can use to, um, learn from and, and to make predictions from and and to improve player safety and start to look at, you know, what's really causing injuries. Um, so yeah, as an, as a football fan and just kind of following the the recent movement over the last decade or so, you know, concerns around player safety, especially concussions. That's been a big deal in the the National Football League with players getting hit in the head and, and having uh, long term damage or permanent damage from from concussions. I know that's that's been a big focus for the NFL. So I think you know if we sort of back up though and away from the sport, which I you're right, I do love football. I love the NFL and it's it's my favorite sport to watch. Even though my team, uh, the Denver Broncos, are not very good right now. They they used to be, but they're not anymore. Um, but that'll change. Don't worry. Um, so, but even with that though, um, it's just looking at AI and where AI can be used the most and the best, you know, it's really going to be more suitable right now with where AI is and its maturity. It's more suitable for more of the black and white data analysis and predictive modeling, things of that nature. Over time, you could start to factor in obviously more qualitative data and, you know, the, the generative AI and the conversational AI is certainly something that's emerging as well. But I think we're, we're still kind of working through the kinks with that model, the more open, freeform data sets, whereas what you're talking about is more, uh, a little bit more tangible and easier to measure. So I think it's pretty cool. And it's just interesting to see how different organizations throughout the world are starting to use or at least thinking about how they could be using AI in creative, groundbreaking ways. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as a former athlete myself, I'm like really excited to see how it can develop not only in football, but also in other sports. And that was another question I had for you was, do you see AI being able to evolve into other sports? And what sports would you see similar to football that have black and white type of um, stats that AI could help um, generate some stuff for that? Yeah, I would think um, that whole Moneyball concept, um, which we, we actually had a guest, I think last year on this podcast that talked about um, analytics in sports and using it as a way to predict success of, of an athlete. And so the whole Moneyball concept is how do you take the stats of, a, of an individual athlete and predict future performance? And so I think from a scouting perspective, especially at the professional level where it's so cutthroat and it's just, you know, the difference between being a 
tier one elite athlete and not is a pretty slim margin there. Um, data there becomes really important. So I, I could see um, the NFL and just any sport in general, soccer and um, basketball and baseball, any other sport, I could see them using um, AI to potentially scout players and predict, you know, who those who those elite athletes might be in the future, especially the hidden gems, you know, the ones that um, you traditionally would overlook because, you know, they're too short or they're they're not big enough or whatever, but they might have something else, some, you know, other uh, metric or other uh, skill set that, that might make them uh, successful. Um, I'm curious, though, from your perspective, being an athlete, I never really was much. I, I didn't do team sports. I did. I, I was a runner in high school, and that was that was the extent of my uh, athletic career. But being a former team athlete yourself at a pretty competitive level, you know, did, was were statistics something that you focused heavily on, or that your coaches did, or how how would you see potentially AI helping what what you did in your career? Yeah, so interesting you asked that. My last coach at my college I played for, he was super into scouting and using statistics and really measuring variables to predict what teams are going to do and even breaking down like where on for volleyball for example where on their body should they be taking a ball because that's their least best position that they can take a ball from and they're gonna you're probably gonna get a point out of it if they do take a ball from that position um so I think having an AI that can almost predict those things more so than having to go in and code everything yourself and break it down yourself. Having an AI will make it more efficient, but also make it probably more, um, more reliable and the data will make more sense than uh, obviously you have variables when somebody else is doing it manually. So I think just the way that it will be able to be more accurate for data for athletes, I think will be really important in the scouting part of the game uh, for when you're going to play a team. And it'll also make it a lot faster for coaches on their end. Rather than spending hours scouting, they can just use an AI um, and maybe double check the work, but they don't have to spend the hours then just gathering the data. They can just more so watch stuff. So it's really interesting from that perspective for coaches and athletes. Yeah, and trying to make sense in their own human interpretation and biases and things of that nature. It kind of reminds me of uh, when you think of scouting and maybe some of the failures or misses in, in scouting history. I mean, one of the big ones that I always think of is Tom Brady in the NFL. And, you know, he's arguably, you know, he'll probably go down as the best player in the National Football League, at least as of right now. And uh, but yet he wasn't, you know, on paper, he just wasn't a very attractive um uh, draft choice for for any NFL players. In fact, he he didn't get drafted till I think the very end of the draft. He was one of the last people to get drafted. And then you look back and you think, well, how did so many teams overlook him? And it's because he was slow. You know, he he wasn't as nearly as fast as some of the other quarterbacks that were getting drafted. He didn't have the arm strength of some of the other quarterbacks, but he had something else. You know, he had intelligence and he knows the game really well. He's extremely smart and versed in the sport more than you know ninety nine percent of the players. So. You know, how do you, you know, could an AI model have maybe better predicted an athlete like Tom Brady or on the flip side, how many bad mistakes scouts make and they overpay these athletes that don't pan out. Um, So be curious to see if maybe the human bias gets uh, human biases and imperfections get um, corrected by some of these AI models and scouting and player safety and some of this other stuff you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, same with Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, I guess. Made yeah. it to the Super Bowl, so yeah. I mean, and he was the last draft pick, so 
there's something to say about that, I guess, too. Yeah, and for those of you listening or watching that maybe don't know who Brock Purdy is or don't remember, if you watched the Super Bowl a few weeks ago, um, he was the starting quarterback or is the starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Didn't didn't win the championship, but but came pretty close. And yeah, you're right. He is he's another example of someone that just was pretty much overlooked by most teams, but turns out he's pretty good. So we'll see if AI can help us identify those hidden gems better in the future. Definitely. And moving on to another part of sports that maybe people wouldn't think of to implement AI in is more the fan side and the fan engagement side of experiences when people are at games like basketball games, football games, etc. What can AI do to engage these fans or make their experience overall better at these games? Do you think there's things that can be implemented in those ways? Well, I tend to be, I guess I tend to be pretty uh, simple when it comes to to games. I just don't want to have to wait in lines. (laughs) So so I just think about... Or, or I don't want to have to wait in a queue of any sort. So if there's a way for AI to tell me or predict where I should go to get a beer or use the the restroom, uh, that I mean that'd be pretty cool a customer experience. If I got a text alert that says if you you know if you need to go get a snack, now's a good time because the lines are low. Or you know if the AI can sort of model out or predict when when uh, there might be less of a less of a wait or whatever. Um, so I don't know. That's that's one thing. But I think there, from what I understand, I think the NFL and other professional sports teams are looking at it probably a lot less simplistically than I am <laughs> as far as how, how they can use AI. Um, but I'd be curious to see how, how they end up uh, using it in the future. Yeah, definitely. Even adding signs of weights and where to go, I mean, could be a simple um, add on to the game. So I definitely see your point on being the simple side of it too, to make a better experience, especially because nobody likes waiting in lines. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Moving on, I'm excited to talk about this next hot topic. It's about AI in third world countries. So the article discusses how artificial intelligence is increasingly benefiting third world countries by addressing their challenges in agriculture, healthcare, education, financial inclusion, and environmental conservation. AI enables the precision farming remote diagnostics, personalized education, financial access, and environmental monitoring. However, challenges such as infrastructure, education, skills, ethics, and affordability exist in these countries. So overcoming these hurdles through responsible AI adoption and collaboration is essential to fully harness AI's potential for sustainable development and poverty reduction in these regions. With all these different developments in these countries, Eric, what do you think are the most promising applications for AI in third world countries? And why do you think that? Well, it's a great point. And I hadn't really thought about AI in the context of a lot of what what you're mentioning here or what this article mentions. Um, a lot of times when we think about AI or when I think about AI, I'm, I'm thinking of it from the perspective of, you know, how do you make a business more effective or effective or efficient or whatever the case may be? Um, but here you're talking about sort of a next level sort of use of AI as far as, you know, improving society and the environment and education levels and um, agriculture and things of that nature. I think, you know, starting with agriculture, just because it, it's more in line with what I tend to think about with AI is I, I think there's a lot there that you could do with with any any food manufacturing company, not just in a developing country, but anywhere you can use AI to help, uh, you know, predict what, you know, 
what the growing conditions might be and what the output might be as a result of, of those growing conditions and the weather and things of that nature. So I think there's a lot that could be done from an agriculture perspective, more on the business side. But, you know, it's interesting to think about some of these social things you're talking about with uh, climate change and uh, education. Um, you know, I'd be curious to see how they use AI in that way, because I think there are a lot of good uses of AI. Not not that using AI in business is bad, but I think there's a perceived threat that, you know, humans have with AI's use in businesses because it, you know, it does in some ways threaten to automate a job or threaten to take over some of what we as humans are used to doing. You just mentioned a moment ago about this, the, the scouts, you know, the professional sports scouts that um, – are looking at data and, and trying to gather data, manipulate data, analyze it themselves. Whereas now you could use AI to automate some of that. In a lot of ways, we could view that as a strength or, or a advantage, or we could view it as a as a challenge or a risk. So, I think there's a lot. This is a good way to counteract that and say, here's some positive things. You know that um, even if we don't see the the good in how AI can help businesses, if if we can use it in ways to help society too, I think that's. That's where uh, you know you can see AI totally game changing and, and being more more accepted by more people for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think one thing that stood out to me in this article was when they were talking about education in third world countries. Sometimes they don't have um, access to the best education, but maybe with AI, the teachers could create harder and better, more intellectual courses for these students that are learning, and it could really benefit the education specter of it too, which is really interesting, I think. A great potential use case. I'd be curious to see. Um, did the article talk about specific countries or are they just saying in general, these are, these are what? Just in general. Be? Okay. That's interesting. I'm curious to hear yeah. from the audience if they know of any uh, uses of AI in, in, or just in general, whether it's business or society or developing country or not. I'm just curious to hear from the audience where they, where they're most excited to see AI have an impact. Definitely. And I think you're right. I think a lot of people do view it as a threat. And now looking at it from this perspective, I think it did open my eyes to what other things it can maybe benefit for society, which is super cool. But also, in your opinion, what are the most significant challenges challenges these third world countries might have when implementing AI in these regions? And how might people address these challenges? It's mm. a good question. I think it's... Um... I would, I would imagine it might be a, a budgetary constraints, you know, when you're, you know, a developing country and it, it, especially if it's a high growth economy of sorts. I mean, there's a lot of, I would imagine these governments have a lot of infrastructure things to deal with and a lot of other fish to fry, so to speak. So finding the resources and the time and the focus to deploy AI in, in sort of this futuristic forward thinking way, I would imagine could be perhaps a little bit more difficult for these, these uh, companies or for these uh government entities. But, um, but as we've talked about, there's a, there's a lot of potential upside from a societal perspective. So if they're thinking long-term, I would think that would make it a little bit easier, but it's always easier said than done, I suppose. Yeah, I definitely agree. Always easy to talk about, but maybe not the most easy to implement when you're in their shoes. So definitely. Um, I'm super excited to move on to talking about change management with our guests today. I'll hand it over to you, Eric. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of resistance to change and uh, human threats or perceived threats of technology, um, that's a big part of what we want to shift gears and talk about in our next segment. 
which is organizational change in uh, SAP and ERP implementations. We're, we're sort of we're honing in a bit on S4 HANA implementations, but the reality is, is everything we're going to talk about is relevant, whether you're implementing SAP or Microsoft or Oracle or any any other ERP system for that matter. So um, we're going to bring on a couple of guests here, Sarah and Julia from the third stage team are going to be on to talk about change management and some of the lessons and, and uh, tips that they've learned over the years and helping clients through their ERP implementations. So stick around for that. We're going to do that right after a quick break. And then later in the show, we'll talk about lessons from ERP failures and lawsuits too, uh, which uh, surprise, surprise has a lot to do with organizational change management as well, but there's more to it than just poor change management that leads to failures and lawsuits. So we're going to talk about those five, those five key lessons that we have from uh, ERP failures and lawsuits here in just a moment. First, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 160. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also find uh, past episodes of the show at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And uh, the show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, which is an independent consulting firm that helps clients with their digital transformation and ERP initiatives. You can learn more about the company by contacting me, or you can reach out to info at thirdstage-consulting.com. And uh, the show is also uh, produced by Major Tom Productions. And if you're looking for uh, sponsorship opportunities, you can uh, learn more about the company by going to contact at majortom-productions.com. And uh, we've included contact information for myself and for Major Tom uh, in the description field below. So be sure to check that out if you're interested. So I'm excited for our next guest here. Um, Sarah Stanley Smith and Julia Joyce are consultants that have been in the change management space for some time now. Um, Julia is uh, based in Scotland and Sarah's based in England. And uh, we want to have them on the show here to talk about some of their lessons from SAP implementation change management initiatives, as well as just ERP implementation change initiatives in general. Uh, we'll, we'll have a bit more of an S4 HANA flavor to this just because we have so many clients that are going through S4 HANA implementations right now. Uh, but the reality is everything we're going to talk about is is going to be 99% relevant to any sort of ERP implementation. So uh, with that all being said, Sarah and Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So Julia, let's start with you. Um, Julia Joyce, you're from the UK. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. So yeah, sure. So this afternoon, I'm joining you from Scotland, um, where it is very cold. So if you're from Scotland this afternoon, hello. Um, so my background um, in organisational change has mostly been IT 
um, implementations, so ERPs, smaller systems. Um, I've worked with a range of different com companies and in industries ranging from aviation to financial services to higher education um, and most recently my um, the role that I'm doing is implementation of Dynamics 365 um, to a higher education institution. Great. Well, thank you for being here all the way from Scotland. I apologize. I, I sort of lumped you into the UK. I, I should have uh, differentiated. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> rookie mistake from the American here on, on the podcast. Um, and then we also have Sarah Stanley Smith. Uh, Sarah, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. Hi, guys. Um, so I'm Sarah. Um, I'm joining you today from Derbyshire. Um, so if, if you don't know where that is, it's kind of in the middle um, of England. Um, I spent the last about 12 years working in um, corporate change management um, for a variety of different clients. Um, it's quite similar to Julia. My experience spans a number of different industries, um, so rail, automotive, utilities, oil, and most recently in retail. Um, APMG practitioner certified, which is quite similar to ProSci, if, if you guys have come across that. Um, and bulk of my experience really has been in digital transformations, um, so largely kind of ERP um, system upgrades. But I have also been involved in um, some quite quirky projects, um, such as sort of opening um, new distribution centers and, and office moves and things like that. Great. Great. And, and just to reiterate, too, I mean, you both have experience with change management on S4 Han implementations. But as you guys have mentioned here in your introductions, also other uh, ERP implementations as well. And I think one of the themes we're probably going to get to here today is that a lot of what we talk about today, even though the topic is S4 HANA implementations, it's really relevant to any sort of uh, ERP implementation yeah. as well. Um, and maybe as a starting point, let's start with you, Sarah. You know, as a general starting point, why is change management so important in S4 HANA implementations or any ERP implementation for that matter? Um, yes, I mean, I, I kind of reiterating what you're saying, Eric, that change management is absolutely crucial kind of for any ERP um, or digital transformation. Um, and I think really this is because essentially these projects, whilst they're technical in nature, um, they're all about people. So it's all about the end users and how the end users are using that system. So at the end of the day, it's kind of the end user that has to go on that transformation journey. Um, and they're the people who are going to be using the new system, you know, once the project's closed down and the project team has disbanded and, you know, moved on to, to other things. So in order to kind of ensure that people use that new system fully and gain all the wonderful benefits that you get, you know, listed in the business benefits um, case, change management um, it must be effectively embedded um, and the changes um, to make them manageable to the end users. So again, it really goes back to it's all about the people. Um, and whilst you might have this, you know, shiny new ERP tool um, to play with, if nobody understands kind of how to use it or why you're using it in the first place, it's just just not going to work. And so that's kind of the crux of it, I, I would yeah. say. Yeah, makes total sense. It, it seems like, uh, you know, as for HANA projects are so complex and the, the software is so complex that you know, a lot of times you get so caught up in just making the technology work that you forget about that important people side, it seems. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts, Julia? Why is why is change management so important? Um, I think really just to echo Sarah's points is that change is, you know, change management is only as good as the individuals that are, are using it or any, sorry, an ERP is only as good as the individuals that are using it. Um, if you have a shiny multi-million pound new spanking new system, um, that no one knows how to use or are unhappy with it or can't get to grips with it or still want to use the legacy systems or spreadsheets, you really aren't going to get that return on that investment. Right. 
Yeah, that's a that's a key point. That last thing you just said about return on investment and you know getting actual business value out of the system and yeah. deploying a system that not only works technically but works from a people and operational perspective as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I'd be curious to hear from the audience too. You know, why why do you all think change is so important? Is it important? I mean, is it, I'd be curious to hear if anyone thinks change management is important. Um, I'd be surprised if we hear that, but you never know. I'd love to hear from the audience uh, your views on change management and why it's so important. Um, how, how do you see change management, change management being different for S4 HANA implementations compared to other sorts of technology or business change initiatives that you've been involved with? Um, let's start, let's start with Julia on that one. Sorry. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to prompt you <laughs> to answer the question. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think initially what I would say is that every, every change implementation is different because there's a number of different variables in there, um, including what people have used before, um, what the organisational, um, what's the word I'm looking for, appetite is for change, um, what the kind of, you know, what the culture is in the organisation. Um, so there's lots of different variables that will, that, that um, impact change and that change journey. Um, and the ERP or what the solution is is one of those variables. So in terms, so notwithstanding those, ERP uh, using SAP for HANA, I think is it's a big system. Okay, it's a big system with lots of bits. I think it's quite complex for people to get their heads around, especially if you've come from lots of legacy systems. Again, one of the questions is is where's that gap of where you've come from to where you're going to? If you've come from I don't know a bunch of spreadsheets and legacy systems that jump to SAP for HANA is potentially massive for people. That's a big, um, it's a big jump for people to actually make in terms of their heads and their abilities and capabilities. And even if you've come from a previous um, in, in iteration of SAP, it's still quite a big jump in terms of the way that it's, it's used differently. So I think that what I'm trying to say is that every change is different um, and there's lots of variables involved in, in delivery of that change. Yeah, absolutely. Makes total sense. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, I couldn't agree more, really. Um, I mean, I, I think the key for me is that kind of it doesn't really matter almost what system you're using. You're still going to have to go through that same change management framework um, process. So you're still going to need to do, um, you know, change management strategy and plan, your readiness assessments, all the comms and the training, all this really good stuff um, that's really important for people to make that journey. Um, but I think it's really important to make sure that your impact assessment, so, you know, Julia kind of mentioned it, but looking at how the organisation is today and how it's going to look in the future, doing that assessment in enough depth and enough coverage is really important because if you don't know how it's changing, you can't kind of guide people through that journey. And I think that's it's the same for, you know, SAP or S4HANA, but any kind of ERP system you're going to have to do that that assessment to make sure it's effective um, and ultimately make sure that people know what's going on, you know, when, when we switch it on. <laughs> Go right. Away. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It makes, makes total sense. And then I, I also want to turn to the audience too. I had asked a couple questions of them. I asked where, where they're joining from first and foremost. Um, we have people from all over the world, as I mentioned before, we have uh, Natalia from London, UK, uh, Sandra from Regina, SK, um, it's Aditya from Calgary, uh, Canada, um, someone joining from Div uh, Divya, USA, Boston, Massachusetts, New Brunswick, Canada, uh, Curacao, um, Williamstead, Curacao, very pretty part of the world. Um, so thank you all for joining here today, uh, people from all over the world. So thank you for that. 
A couple of comments too. This is from uh, Tofik on LinkedIn. Uh, Tofik, and I hope I pronounced your name correctly or close to correctly. Uh, he, he says change management is the key to success. So uh, at least we have one person on board so far, at least one person that's agreeing that change management is really important. Um, so thank you for that. And then also uh, from LinkedIn, this is from Malcinda. Alcinda says change management is one of the key levers you pull to execute a digital strategy. Otherwise, you would have just spent that investment on a shiny object that isn't used. I think that's very consistent with what you both just uh, alluded to as well. Um, S4HANA is a great technology, a lot of groundbreaking stuff and capability in the software, but that doesn't really matter if people aren't using it and it's not helping uh, make the business and the operations better. So uh, thank Absolutely. you for, the, for that feedback. We're here with Sarah and Julia from the third stage consulting team talking about organizational change in S4HANA and ERP implementations in general. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Could you whisper in my if you are aiming for transformation success, turn to third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number... 160. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And this is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation and ERP implementations. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Sarah and Julia talking about change management in ERP implementations. Let's jump back into the conversation. Um, yeah. One other one uh, comment here, uh, a follow-up here from Tafik. Um, he says, change management is the key to success. At the end, it's people within the organization that utilize the ERP system. If the change impact is not managed within the organization and the people, the implementation process could be jeopardized. Um, so change impact being one of the, the key words here, I guess just sort of a maybe a follow-up question or a, a building on Tofik's point there. Um, how big are these impacts typically that you see, you know, with whether it's S4 HANA implementations or any sort of massive ERP implementation, how big are the impacts? Are they... Are they as big as we think? Are they bigger? Like, how would you how would you explain or summarize um, how big those changes are? Let's start with you, Sarah. I mean, it really, really does depend on the organization and the people. There's so many variations to this. You know, you can kind of open the Pandora's box, as it were, and look inside and you've got all these really great um, people who are very sort of um, tech savvy and, and perhaps the change isn't quite as big for those types of people. But I think Julia mentioned it earlier, you know, you've got kind of colleagues that may have um, been using Excel for the last 20 years, you know, instead of an ERP. And somebody who is in that scenario, that's going to be a much bigger impact to that sort of person than it might be for some somebody else. So I think it, it really does, it does vary. Um, I think also there's kind of maybe a bit of a um, sort of a misconception that if people are already using SAP, 
going from SAT to S4HANA would be easy, right? Um, but I think that's quite a risky assumption to make um, just because it is quite a different tool, um, you know, and it's less customizable, all these kind of things. So I think, again, you might go, oh yeah, they're already using SAP, isn't that brilliant? We'll just, we'll switch it on and they'll be fine. Um, but it's, you know, even that can actually be a really, really big impact to um, quite a lot of people in the company. Um, so just really important to make sure that impact assessment is, is done in that detail. To, yeah, uncover those things. Yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts, Julia? Um, yeah, I'm just looking at the question um, raised by Natalia in terms of how do we structure, um, how do we structure that um, for an ERP? Um, I tend to do it by process um, and look at. We first of all, but the way that I would structure it is I would look at each department or each function that has been impacted then have a look at those processes and work with a business analyst to look at to see what the processes are, uh, build a process tax taxonomy. And then um, what from there, what I would probably do is do a heat map of how many processes are being impacted for every team. And that will help you understand where the red areas are, um, areas where you want to focus more change effort than, than other areas. And that's a really good starting point. And then from there, you, there's obviously lots of different things that you can drill it down into, things like role mapping, um, other types of things as well. But for me, processes are at the core of that. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and looking, kind of leading with the process and looking at how yeah. the software is going to work with those processes and then ultimately figuring out how is that different than yeah. the way you're doing things today. Yeah, yeah. and I think, so the other thing that I wanted to say is 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 the UI or the user interface. Um, that's a really important thing to think about as well because um, it, it's all very well moving to an ERP, but if you're moving to an ERP, which is, let's say, fiddly to use or its interface isn't as, as user-friendly as you as you would expect, that's a challenge to change as well, is to get people to start thinking in that particular language or using that kind of skill set or expecting to see that. And if we're using the ProSci model, that's where this knowledge and ability comes into place prior to before we go live, is to let people understand and see and play with it before we hit the ground running. Um, and then at least then they've got a chance of when we go live, they're, they're more successful using it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you had, Sarah, you had an interesting point too that I want to come back to that I don't want to gloss over, which is the the fact that if you're an existing SAP customer, let's say you're using R3 or even ECC, and mm -hmm. there's this perception oftentimes that it's a lift and shift, it's still SAP. Yeah, it might be a little bit different, but it's, it's for the most part going to be the same system. And to your point, it's really not. I mean, I think it's worth highlighting that point you made, which is it's, it's a total rewrite of the technology. Yeah. So it's an entirely new system. Mm -hmm. Yes, it kind of has a similar SAP look and feel that, you know, SAP customers might find somewhat familiar, but the capabilities, the processes, the way it works, especially as you mentioned, the, the private cloud and even more so the public cloud version of S4HANA is going to be less flexible and it's going to be probably a bigger change than you Absolutely. think for a lot of organizations, especially if you have a lot of customizations in your, in your legacy SAP mm -hmm. environment, you're, you're not going to have that in, in the new, the new environment, presumably. I think that that's actually a really big issue because that kind of creates, I, I find a lot of change resistance. So people who are used to the customization element and quite enjoy that aspect of it to have that taken away, it's a very hard thing to then sell to people. You know, they go, oh, where's yeah. my, you know, whatever it is, I'm used to doing it this way. And all of a sudden, you know, the change manager's coming in and saying, oh, yeah, we're taking all that lovely, uh, lovely customization away from you. How do you feel about that? So right. it, it's quite difficult. Um, and if that's not managed 
properly and given kind of the time and the engagement that is needed with the end users, it can become a really negative thing. And people go, I don't want this. And they kind of actively start to resist it, which is, you know, where you really, really don't want to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And maybe I'll ask you uh, this, Julia, this is off script. I'll, I'll warn you ahead of time. I didn't prep you for this question. But but when you think about some of the emerging technologies that SAP and other vendors have, like um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and some of the analytics and things, some of the automation technologies that maybe are, are a bit more, call it aggressive in the, the ability to automate a human's job. Do, do you guys mm -hmm. see that being a is that a bigger threat? Is that create more change resistance? In other words, do the more advanced technologies that can actually do more and deliver more business value, does that create more of a threat to people and from a change management perspective? What do you think, Julia? Funnily enough, um, I'm working on a, I'm starting off a digital transformation with the organization that I'm um, working with at the moment. Um, and part of that is about encompassing AI <clears throat> into that. And while I feel like the, 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 we've done the organization has done some research that into the past um it's a it's a university so they've done some research into how students feel about ai um and the research that came out was that they feel that it's part threat and part opportunity as well but i think the fear with people is is that they don't understand how to use it properly um what would be for a student for example what or what is just using AI to you to do um, what it's meant to do. So I think when you, I think there's a, a there's a real mix of it, it feeling that it's a threat and it can take over your job, but there's also a real feeling that the, it, it, with proper education about AI and ChatGPT and all of the other things, is that there is a feeling that it is potentially a good opportunity um, for us to move, for an organisation to take a step change digitally. Um, to move forward into that world. But again, it's about that messaging and management of that message and not letting people just run with their own um, perceptions of what AI is. Right. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, Sarah? Yeah, I agree. And I think you've hit it on the head there, Julia, when it's about, you know, saying it's about messaging, because at the end of the day, if all this great new stuff's coming into the business and we haven't properly told the person what that means for them, people tend to go for kind of, if you've got options on the table, they tend to go for the negative one and go, oh, that means I'm gonna lose my job, even if it's not the case. Um, and if you haven't kind of taken people through that engagement journey, people get really worried and then performance drops, all these kind of horrible things that you really want to um, avoid. So I think the key is to kind of explain it to people in the way that they understand, but be really open and honest about people and give them time to digest what's happening. And if you can do that, people are much more willing to kind of engage with it and, and start to embrace the change rather than going, oh no, this is automatically bad for me. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm going to do this active quitting kind of sort of step yeah. away kind of thing. Because yeah. again, that's the worst scenario, which you really want to try and avoid. <laughs> yeah. Active quitting. That's a good, uh, a good thread to pull into this too. That's, it seems like that's the, the thing that a lot of organizations overlook is the, they, they look for the obvious sabotage resistors you know the people that are just blatantly opposed to the project and those people are hard to find because there's not usually not that many of them and usually that's not the biggest threat it seems like the the biggest threat are the active quitters the people that they're on board with change in general but now that you're rocking my world or disrupting my world yeah now i'm going to resist it because i just don't i'm not as excited about it now that you're telling yeah. me i'm going to change my job 
It's yeah, quite I think contagious as well, isn't it? Sorry, Julia, I was just going to say there's this kind of rolling effect. You sort of see one person who starts to maybe panic a little bit and then it spreads yeah. and it's like wildfire, you know, and it's yeah. once that's happened, it's a really hard fire to put out, I find, whereas yeah. you could have probably prevented it in the first place by doing your change management effectively. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think there, just to, to touch on a question that I can see that someone's asked is, again, is about expectations management. And yes, you're absolutely right, is that, is that it's about setting that clear vision at the end what the organization is going to look like and what it's going to look like for an individual stroke team stroke department it's really important so that they can buy into it absolutely it's the fear of the unknown if you just say we're changing and we've got a digital transformation you know i'm a change manager i would panic at that because i think i don't know what that means what does it mean am i going to be asked to do something that i don't know how to do do i have to learn a new system uh, you know, is it going to be harder? Is it going to take away? Am I going to lose my job? Sell a vision, be clear about the vision and the disbenefits that that might bring, because clearly, you know, there may be disbenefits, there may be an organisational restructure, but along with that comes benefits and at least you've been honest and transparent. And that really helps people at the outset of the journey get it in their head and helps them move forward that little bit, because what we don't want people to do is to stay where they are or to move back we want people to be moving forward in that change journey inc even incrementally even just a little step forward at any time yeah yeah makes total sense we're here with sarah and julia from the third stage consulting team talking about organizational change in s4 hana and erp implementations in general we've got a lot more to cover we'll be right back with more transformation ground control I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 160. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And this is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation and ERP implementations. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Sarah and Julia talking about change management in ERP implementations. Let's jump back into the conversation. And in sort of a, a I, I think we're we're leaning into or, or a nice segue into another question I had for you is, um, why do so many organizations and project teams overlook the importance of change management? If it's if it's as, as important as we're all saying it is, the audience seems to be be in agreement that yes, change management is important. Then why do organizations and project teams overlook that so much? Why don't we start with you, Sarah? Sure, I, I kind of think it's twofold actually. Um, so uh, maybe this is a slightly kind of um, used to happen more than it than it did in the past. Because I know sort of change management, I think, is being more embraced as as time goes on and people do start to see the value of it. But um, in my personal experience, I've had a lot of people kind of view it as being this kind of fluffy, nice to have thing. You know, we come in and we do a bit of communications, we might do a bit of training. You know, we're a bit of cheerleading for the project or, or whatever it might be. 
Um, but I think this is kind of a fundamental misconception of the value um, that change management can bring, and it can really hinder, you know, your ERP program or your digital transformation. Um, and I kind of think the main problem or the main issue around this is that people don't fully understand what change management is and what value it can bring. So in my mind, I think you could sort of, or you should view it um, as being just as crucial to a project as um, project management, for example. So you wouldn't start one of these projects without a project manager. You shouldn't right. start one without a change manager either. Um, so I think that's kind of the first thing. Um, I think the second thing is that people have often had quite a bad experience on change programs, possibly because there hasn't been a change manager or, or they've been kind of thrown in at the end and it hasn't worked out for whatever reason. So there might be this kind of negative buildup of, oh, I've been through change before and it was terrible and change management is rubbish because it doesn't work. But it, it's nine times out of 10, it's because it hasn't been done properly or it hasn't been given the opportunity to kind of deliver that value. So I think those are kind of two things, quite different things going on, but in my experience, they're sort of semi-common, which is slightly worrying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think it's also about the change maturity of the organisation as a whole. Yeah. Um, I've, I don't think I've worked in many, with many organisations where they've been particularly mature at business change. Um, so change, ten, change management tends to happen sporadically because they have a project manager or a program director um, who, um, who, who knows about it. And then we organically come in like moles and say hi. Um, and then we deliver good change and then that helps spread the message. Um, and I think that that is that's quite common. Um, I think that if you if you have even if you have a change management organization or a change management office or some sort of center of excellence as well I do think pe people still they need to do a really good PR job more than anybody else in terms of the benefits that change management brings um, because otherwise people will still cling on to this 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 idea that we're just about comms and training and then therefore that is seen as an added cost and an overhead that could potentially be done by the project manager or a BA insert other existing person on the project um, and that's part of the problem as well is that it's it change management needs really strong PR yeah 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 that's a, it you bring up a really good point Julia and that is um, you mentioned that oftentimes people will will view change management as, as training and comms. And I think that's the two, probably the two most obvious first things that we think of when we think of change management. We think about, we've got to train people how to use the system and we've got to do some communication to make sure people understand what's going on with the project and what the changes are at a high level. How would you summarize, um, maybe I'll start with you, Julia, since you, you, you triggered this question in my head. Um, how would you summarize just some of the other things I, without going into detailed methodologies necessarily, but what are some of the major components of change management outside of train the trainer and basic communications? Yeah, sure. Okay. So first of all, we start off with stakeholders, um, stakeholder analysis, stakeholder identification, and from there, create a st stakeholder strategy to make sure that you have categorized your stakeholders and you're bringing along, them along with you on that journey as well to make sure that you've got some way of making sure that you've given the right people the right messages at the right time outside of mass communications okay that's not necessarily done by the, the change manager but you're encouraging the sponsor and whoever is best placed to take that message forward so making sure that you're let's say building a coalition from, of change that way um so that's one thing i think secondly we've touched on it is the bit that's absolutely core to me is this change impact assessment you will never be able to deliver well, you might be by luck, but certainly not by design, 
successful change if you don't understand the core of what is actually changing. So you, there's a massive piece of work that needs to be done about understanding the processes, understanding the process taxonomy, looking at the, what what is what they're going from, from where they're going to, understanding that gap, understanding how big that change is for each of that each of those areas or each of those teams, individuals, departments, however you want to break it down, and then looking to see how you're going to build that gap for change. Now that could be communications, it could be training, it could be a number of other things, but for me, change impact is the absolute core of what we do, and that has got nothing to do with comms and nothing to do, that's that's the output of that comms and training. The change impact is the absolute core of what we do. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great, great overview. What would you, would you add anything to that, Sarah, as far as major work streams um, within change management? Yeah. I mean, I guess in addition to those kind of key bits, because obviously I, I do reiterate what Julia is saying, the impact assessment is absolutely crucial and kind of everything else does spit out from that. Um, but you've got items such as, you know, business readiness assessments to make sure that the business is kind of ready and able and capable to take on the change. Um, another kind of key bit, which is kind of linked to communications and engagement, is your change network agent, um, sorry, change agency network. So essentially, um, we kind of leading into this sort of building coalition of change, creating a network of internal advocates for your change that can then kind of help drive and deliver. Um, and, you know, they do help with kind of the training and the comms, but it's kind of that's it's the, the piece that comes before delivering those kind of key bits, um, key bits of work. Um, and then I kind of on the top of on top of that and towards the end of the project, actually, we get involved heavily in kind of support models, hypercare, lessons learned, all this kind of really good stuff as well that kind of helps with adoption and embedment. So, um, yeah, it, it's kind of an all encompassing role, actually, which is probably why we're tired quite a lot of the time, because, you know, we, we end up doing a lot of stuff. Um, but in my experience, if you're on kind of a large um, ERP program, you will have a change manager, but you also have a training manager and a comms manager. So that kind of tells you that there's key roles for those two sections in addition to the change manager. So it, yeah. it, it really isn't just all about that. It's all this other really good stuff that kind of, yeah, paints a picture as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier, Sarah, you were talking about how resistance to change um, can spread like wildfire. Yeah. And a lot of times, I'm sure you have both seen this in your careers. A lot of times as change practitioners, you get pulled into a firefighting situation where the change management is just out of control, tons of resistance. The rest of the project might be going fine. You know, the technical piece of it might be going fine. You know, we've built a system that works, but now we've got some change issues and it's a mess, you know. So I guess the question becomes, how, when should change management start so that we can avoid the wildfires and proactively get ahead of that resistance and, and turn it into a business value proposition instead of a firefighting proposition? How, what, what do you think, Sarah? When, when should change management begin? I mean, as early as possible is, is always the answer to that question. Um, so I kind of think as soon as you've got your project manager and your project team is being built, that's when the change manager needs to come in. Um, quite a lot of, or in my experience, I think quite a lot of organizations tend to get this wrong. Um, and I'm not sure if it's because of kind of competing priorities or, you know, it's an extra financial burden to bring somebody in sooner. Um, but it's really crucial because kind of as we've alluded to at the front end of the project, we do so much information kind of gathering and data collection on how the organization is functioning. If we're brought in later, we're kind of playing catch up, you know, and it's almost too late to kind of spend, you know, a good couple of months, whatever it is, kind of understanding the organization when you're trying to understand the future, 
that makes sense. So I think, you know, as soon as you've got your kind of your discovery phase going on and maybe the um, system implementator is coming on board to talk people through the new system and the benefits, that's where we should be starting and be party to all of those technical meetings as well, just so that we've got kind of the ammunition and the material that we need to build those comms and engagement plans with the information that you get at that really early stage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What do you think, Julia? Anything to add to that? Um, no, other than to echo um, Sarah's comments, it's absolutely about setting the scene and understanding up front. Um, to link that back to resistance as well, there's two ways that I like to manage resistance. Is first of all, anticipated resistance. What do you expect people to be doing so that you can build a strategy to, to, um, to deal with that? Um, as you progress through the change, you will find that resistance pops out of, out of anywhere. Um, and there's, you know, you obviously have to manage that as you go along. But apart from anything else, being in at the beginning can help you understand the landscape. It can help you understand who the teams are. Talking to stakeholders can help you understand their thoughts and things. And as well, if you bring change in at the beginning, um, that helps ensure that your leadership is aligned. OK, so what you don't want to do or certainly what I don't want to do is to go through the change and find out that your key stakeholders, your sponsor network or whatever you want to call them, has a different idea of what's happening. Bringing change management in at the beginning can help safeguard against that so that your stakeholders are all in agreement about what's going to happen, that resistance from them is negated and therefore they become ambassadors for change and they can help manage resistance within their, within their own teams and functions and areas. Mm. Yeah, well said. Yeah, it's a good, good approach. We're here with Sarah and Julia from the third stage consulting team talking about organizational change in S4HANA and ERP implementations in general. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 160. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And this is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation and ERP implementations. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Sarah and Julia talking about change management in ERP implementations. Let's jump back into the conversation. Now, speaking of approaches and just sort of the way we tackle change management, um, SAP has their Activate methodology that many, if not most organizations deploying us for HANA will use. Um, does that activate methodology give us what we need to to um, to deploy change management successfully? Um, I'll take this one. I'm, um, I'm going to say no. Um, looking at the, um, I mean, looking at the, the methodology itself, um, change management appears to be in the layer that says project management. And I don't think that 
enough there's enough detail to that as well and I think that's very much limited to things like mass communications and train the trainer um uh, hopefully in the past 35 minutes that we we've identified that change is much more deeper and wider than those things as well so I feel like if you were going to look at the you're going to rely on the activate techno methodology on its own I really wouldn't be confident that you're going to get the level of return of investment on, from your people that you think that you're going to get from spending millions of pounds or dollars or whatever currency on a new ERP. However, I think that if you were to use a change manager with the Activate methodology and to complement that, um, that could work. But I would say on its own, it doesn't make me happy that it's it's um, included everything that I would do as a change manager for for any project let alone a large scale ERP digital transformation yeah yeah what are your what are your thoughts Sarah yeah absolutely I, I think if if you're going to just use that as a methodology in its own without the change management aspect the people element just won't it just won't fly unless you have a miracle <laughs> I think um however I, I do think the activate methodology has some good bits to it in terms of the change management side of things so um, you know, the stages that it goes through, so the discover, prepare, explore, etc. I think those are really good phases to be able to hang your change management um, plan off. I think there was um, a question, actually, and I've lost it now, but it was kind of how do project managers, I think, work with, yeah, would you set up two separate work streams or would you manage together versus separately? So I think that's quite interesting here because you've kind of got your project management work stream and your tech work stream that will use the activate methodology and your change management work stream will run in parallel to that. So for the discovery phase, for example, when users are getting familiar with the benefits of SAP, that's when we would come in and do some analysis in terms of, you know, benefits, realization, prep and all that kind of good stuff. So I think very long winded answer to your question. I think it's kind of doing it in tandem and you can't really have one without the other. I think they need to be done together to, to get a successful result. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I feel I feel like I feel like that the if you look at if you look at the activate methodology on a page, there's a lot of weighting attached to other things like data integration and all of those things and project management is and change management is down the bottom and I feel like actually they're all equally important as each other you can have the best you know data integration transformation if you want to and the best data quality but without project management and that discipline and change management discipline do you know what I mean I feel like they're it's suggesting that something is more important than another and actually I would disagree that that's I would disagree with that yeah it almost when I look at the activate methodology and it's not just activate by the way it's the methodologies of other uh, erp yeah. vendors as well but yeah. when you look at some of these methodologies like activate i feel like it's um the technologist view of how a software should be deployed and then they realize wait we do need to add some change management here so let's pepper in a couple you know training let's do some train the trainer let's do some basic communications just so we can say we covered it um but yeah. i think what we're saying here is there's a lot more to it than than kind of your basic technology driven change management uh, focus. Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, there was another question, sorry, about somebody, I think Natalia asked about how you demystify change management for tech teams. I think that's quite yeah. pertinent here as well, because it, 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 I think this is all kind of hinging on the technology and the system, but not having kind of that 
what's the word I want, kind of a, a roadmap and a strategy for change management in its own right. So in terms of demystifying, again, it's another good reason to bring us in early because we can spend some time with the tech teams basically saying, hi, this is what we do. Yeah. Here's how we can help you. This is what value we can bring and kind of get that really good professional relationship working up front. And then everybody kind of understands each other. So I think yeah. it's spending that time, isn't it? Yeah. And, I, and actually, um, to, to echo Sarah's point, for me, architects and developers are absolutely key in terms of helping me understand the technical landscape yeah. so that I can translate that into something that is helpful for our users. Um, it's very difficult to get information from somebody that doesn't understand what you do because they feel like, why should I? Or they're taking my homework. Explaining to an architect or to somebody else in the technical sphere what you're here to do unlocks and helps broker that relationship so that you can extract what they've got in their mind and take that and use that as valuable collateral to help deliver that change message so um, it happens it happened to me absolutely loads um, where I will nicely suggest that we have a working session on change management I'll talk through the roadmap I'll talk through ADCAR or whichever methodology that we're using and allow them to ask questions and explain why I need them um, to be part of my world as well and make them feel important, not just that I'm, you know, I'm just here to take over the world, but I need what's in their brains to help them do my job as well. And that tends to work quite well and they do get infused and engaged because they can see the benefit of it and they can see the benefit of it for them as well. Right. Yeah, that's really well, well put. And one other thing I wanted to maybe add on to what you're both saying about you know, whether or not going back to the point about whether or not the activate methodology covers enough of what we need with change management is you have to look at what, what SAP as a company is doing with their, with the migrations of their, their customers too. They have um, the 2027 deadline to get legacy customers off of VCC and R3. And then they've also introduced this rise program that's meant to get more of their legacy customers moved over to SAP S4 HANA cloud. So SAP's focus as a company really is on getting as many of their customers shifted over to S4 HANA as quickly as possible within a pretty narrow window. And what I worry about is in the in the midst of all that chaos and that rush to get people moved over to S4 HANA, where does that leave change management? And, and are we going to focus enough time and effort? Do we have enough resources? Do we have enough time to focus on change management? That's what I worry about with S4 HANA implementations. I don't expect you guys to have an answer to that necessarily, but it, it is something I think undermines the importance of change management, which is why I think you're seeing so many S4 HANA implementations that are struggling and failing right now is partially because people are rushing to try and just deploy technology for technology's sake. Um, yeah, yeah. I've, I've encountered that quite a, quite a lot of times where people just say, we want an ERP, we want a digital transformation, we want it now for whatever reason. And that doesn't make it successful having it next week. Um, right. Well thought out, well managed change journeys involving and bringing your people together are what guarantees success. It's it's one thing to say to a board or to report as a sponsor, yes, I've delivered an X shiny new system. But the real success metric isn't when you go live. The real success metric is, is that reinforcement. What are people doing a year later? How well has it been used in anger? How well people have adopted to that? What's your attrition rate with staff? You know, how do people feel about it? That's that's your success measure. Right. 
I do worry that, uh, as you're saying, Eric, with this deadline, if things are kind of rushed towards the end, um, and you know, oh, gosh, we've got six months left to do this. Let's get a whole team of change managers in because that will fix it. Again, yeah. that's creating, we spoke about it earlier, but that negative experience of change management because that's not how it's supposed to be. And I do worry there'll be a lot of companies suddenly go, oh, my gosh, you know, we've got to, got to hit this target. And then it's going to cause so many problems, you know, in, in sort of 12, 18 months down the line. When, as Julia yeah. said, people are going, oh, yeah, we don't know how to use it. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We're not getting any business value out of it, but we yeah. spent a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's a question I want to come back to from from Kyler on LinkedIn. This is a great question. It sort of ties into what we're talking about here on this thread of is the activate methodology enough? And I think what we're saying is it gives us a starting point or some bits and pieces of methodology to begin with, but we've got to augment activate with real change management muscle. And here's another sort of similar question that Kyler has on LinkedIn is do you really need an outside independent or tech agnostic change management firm to support change management? in an S4 HANA implementation, or can it be handled by the system integrator? Maybe I'll just add another layer to this is, do system integrators typically do this stuff in, in your experience? Is, is that enough? If we say, hey, we've hired one of the big or one of the, the major system integrators, they, they'll handle change management for us. Is that a, a reasonable expectation or what's, what's your experience been? Uh, start with you, Sarah. Uh, so in my experience, it, we've, I was going to say, like from 99% of the people I've worked for have got an outside um, OCM companies come in or relied on kind of permanent change managers if they have the resource to, to you know, get, get those guys involved. Um, and I, I personally think that works better just because I feel like the SI has its own priorities and they're not always the same as the change management element. So if you are external to that SI when they come in, you're able to challenge more effectively, I think, when maybe the people element isn't being considered um, as highly as it should. Whereas if you're kind of within that sort of SI bubble, you're going to go with the part that, you know, the SI company's priorities rather than going, actually, guys, wait a sec, we haven't thought about, I don't know, the finance team over here and we haven't given them enough attention or whatever the case may be. So I definitely think it's more beneficial having people on the outside unless you've got a system implementator who is very keyed up on change management and has that freedom to allow the change manager to kind of, you know, challenge, I think. Yeah. yeah. For, yeah, for me, I think change management is is a, I don't know, let's call it a critical friend, Um, is that uh, that objectivity is key for me, because you're the one person that's trying to, or you're one team that's trying to manage that, um, trying to manage that resistance, it's trying to, you know, get people to come around to your way of thinking, and you do need to be objective, and you do need to part of, the, I think, part of the skill of being a change manager is being able to say, <clears throat> is having the confidence to say, look, you know, in terms of change, you know, a metric we are red because people aren't ready to go. So while you might be on time, on budget, you know, your scope might be fine. Actually, if your people aren't ready to go, then you're not. And you need to have that confidence to be able to say that. And sometimes as a change manager, um, you don't, as I'm, I'm segueing slightly, but sometimes as, a, as one person, a lone voice, is that you don't always get have that backup to tell you that. So being a change manager and being that objective person it's about getting relationships with your sponsor and making sure your sponsor understands and listens the importance of it so they can give that message as well. Um, and being objective is, is really what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like, you know, in my experience too, system integrators or any implementation partner of SAP, they sort of have their, their blinders on, not because they want to be blinded, but because they're so focused on S4 HANA as a product. And my job is to deploy S4 HANA. And I, my job is to get people to use S4HANA. 
And that's fine. You need that skill set, obviously, on a project team. But what you guys are saying is a little bit different. You're not coming at it from a SAP first perspective. You're coming at it more from a business and people first perspective. Mm-hmm. And we've got to figure out how to bridge that gap between yeah. S4HANA first and now business and technology. How do we translate that S4HANA competency over into actual usage and value and yeah. adoption? Yeah. yeah, we want to make sure people are moving at the same or, or the people are moving at the same speed as the technology, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we need, it can and be really tricky it. sometimes, can't it? <laughs> you know, yeah. To make sure yeah. you've got that balance right. But. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially because technology is changing. So it, it's exponentially increasing its rate of change. And we as humans are not changing really any faster. I mean, I, I guess we've, we've gotten used to change maybe a little bit more, but I, don't, I would argue we're not capable of moving as fast as technology is changing, and yeah. which yeah. puts even more pressure and more importance on, on change management. Definitely. Definitely. What do you think some of the biggest challenges are? I, I know we've sort of, we've touched on some of this already, but when you look at an S4HANA implementation or any ERP implementation for that matter, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see from a from a change management and people perspective? Um, let's, start with, uh, let's start with you, Julia. Sorry, since I started to speak. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I keep forgetting to prompt. If you come to think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think there are, there are many. Um, and again, as we've said, it's, you know, it's, it's dependent on lots of things. I think that one of the biggest challenges with moving is doing a digital transformation and moving to an ERP is the scale of the change and the the jump from the from the using spreadsheets and legacy systems into an all sing and all dance in one system that looks and feels completely different and you'll have to work completely different. That is a big mental jump for people to make. Um, with or without change management, we can obviously our job is to make that easier for people, but that is, a, that is a big challenge in people's heads. And also what I wanted to say is that change management is, is about appealing to people's hearts and minds. And so while you can train people and say, right, to do this process, you press that button there and then that button, and then you press save and then you do something else, that's fine. You're teaching them about the process. But in order to get the value from an ERP, it's about appealing to people's hearts and minds about the benefits of an ERP. Um, and I think that that, sometimes can be overlooked is that we're trying to look big picture here about the vision so that leads me on to one of the biggest challenges and something that I've experienced a couple of times is is trying to get your senior people your sponsors to nail down the vision so quite often they'll say right we want to do x or we want to have an ERP or a digital transformation or whatever they want to have and then the natural question that we would ask as change managers is to say what does that look like? Tell me, paint a picture of what that looks like for this function, for that function. How does it look like for each function? How does that fit with architecture? And they go, um, don't really know. We just want a digital transformation. So stage one is to pull it out of their head and make sure that everybody understands how that's working and what it looks like so that we've got something to sell very difficult to deliver change and for people who are going well what are you actually de- delivering we're going I don't really know um we right. need to know to be able to do our jobs properly so those are some of the challenges that we get uh, there are many I could talk forever about them but those are just some off the top of my head we're here with Sarah and Julia from the third stage consulting team talking about organizational change in S4HANA and ERP implementations in general we've got a lot more to cover we'll be right back with more transformation ground control Sets off in unsuspecting hurt and as you start
My name is Eric Kimberling, and I'm the CEO and founder of Third Stage Consulting. Before we dive too far into today's content, I want to invite you to learn a little bit more about Third Stage Consulting, who we are and what we do. We help clients through their entire digital transformation life cycles, beginning with digital strategy, software evaluation and selection, all the way through and including implementation planning, implementation readiness, and the actual implementation itself. We're technology agnostic, so we only represent our clients' best interests. We do not represent software vendors. But having said that, we work very closely with software vendors, all the leading players that you can imagine we've worked with both in helping clients evaluate and select them, but also in helping clients implement those solutions as well. So we have a very broad objective agnostic view of the market that is meant to really represent your interest as you go through your digital transformation. I also encourage you to scan this QR code right here to get access to our resource center. This resource center has a ton of information, ton of eBooks that are free. You have access to top 10 software rankings, playbooks for how to make your project more successful, guides to change management, YouTube videos, all kinds of stuff that are gonna help you through your digital transformation. So I encourage you to scan this QR code to get access to those resources. And please feel free to reach out to me directly to brainstorm ideas about your project. Even if it's just informally, you wanna bounce around some ideas and get some informal advice, I'd be happy to spend some time with you. So feel free to reach out to me. I've included my contact information below. You can also find it in the description field of this video as well. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 160. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And this is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy sides of transformation and ERP implementations. We're here in the midst of a conversation with Sarah and Julia talking about change management in ERP implementations. Let's jump back into the conversation. What would you add to that, Sarah? Uh, I think it's kind of linked to that, actually, is that the process Julia's kind of just given us an overview of is is quite long winded or it can be because if kind of your senior leadership and your sponsors haven't really got an idea of what it is they want, it does take quite a lot of time and effort to get that out of people. And I think often it's a case of, oh, just have a meeting and, you know, we'll, we'll get some outputs and it will be fine. But I think people don't appreciate how long some of the activity that we do takes. And people get frustrated because they kind of go, oh, you know, you can have X done in a month, it will be fine. But if it doesn't go to plan, it's, oh, you know, we haven't got time to go back and redo it or whatever it is. So I think it's just this lack of appreciation about how, how difficult it is, actually, I think, to take people on a change management journey. Um, it, it, it really is, you know, and it, it can vary quite a lot. So it's quite an unpredictable thing to be able to um, sort of scope out, you know, at the start of a project. Um, your sponsor might say to you, right, well, how long is it going to take? And you go, well, I, I don't know yet because, you know, I haven't done the analysis to be able to sort of define how complicated it's going to be. Um, so, yeah, kind of this lack of appreciation, I think, in terms of the time and the effort it takes is, is a big thing. Um, yeah. Hence, again, why we need to be sort of involved really early on so we can kind of go through that journey with, with the sponsors and the leadership. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, it's, it's uh, you look at how many project teams and organizations put together their S4HANA implementation plan based on a proposal from an SI that's based on a technical implementation. And then you look at the magnitude of change and obviously the magnitude of change could be anywhere from a lot of change to a real lot of change um, or somewhere in between. And, and that's going to be, that's ultimately going to determine how quickly you can deploy S4HANA or any, any technology. But yet so many organizations don't 
start change management till later. So it's like, how can you have, how can you really know how long a project's going to take and how much you're going to spend and how much chaos it's going to cause within your organization unless you've done some sort of organizational assessment up front mm -hmm. as part of your planning process. And that, I don't know if you, is that a common challenge you guys see or, or how you've navigated that in the past? I think it's it's yeah. more common than it really should be, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I, I think again, it comes back to this kind of um, concept that people don't really understand what the change management aspect is. So I think kind of the way I approach it is to um, kind of speak with your leadership about it and kind of show them the value of what doing this, you know, this particular activity early will bring you versus what happens if we leave it too late. And sort of really high level but depicting those scenarios i think it's quite powerful in going this is why we need to do it now if we don't these are the things that are gonna you know likely to happen yeah yeah, yeah. here's a i'll send us bringing uh, bringing the heat here with a lot of really good questions which i like um so i'll send on linkedin ask a really good question sort of related to this all which is who should own change management during a digital transformation process is it the human capital function the business itself or or someone else who who owns change management within an organization or who should it be? I think there's a number of different models that you can use. Mm -hmm. I've worked on organizations where the change managers have belonged to the business, um, where I'm working now, they work within the, the IT function. Um, so it partially depends on the business and how that works. I find that I find that when you're part of the business, you can, there's a a risk that you can be on the side of the business and you're not truly independent. What I would advocate for is a model that is um, where it allows you to be objective and challenge appropriately. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it, it, I mean, it depends on what the. I mean, it depends on how much. I mean, for example, human capital is involved in the change. Again, does it? I think the key questions that I would ask are does it allow you the change manager to be objective does it allow them to freely answer and ask questions that might be difficult um, or are they reined down and curtailed by the politics of their department that's where it starts to get a little bit sticky so I would advocate something that is objective independent however that looks in the organization I don't know because every organization is different but that's where I would feel more comfortable um, but I would also add to that as well is that a model, a change management model, where you are have a close-ish working relationship with the sponsor is absolutely key. If you are three steps removed from the sponsor and you can't speak to them because it has to be the project manager and they have to broker that conversation, that's going to um, dilute down the messages that you've got because they may not want to deliver that message and you're relying on them to deliver the message that you want to do and get the answer that you need. So. Um, yeah, it depends, but anything that allows you to have an open and open and um, honest relationship with your sponsor um, is 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 a good one for me. Mm. Yeah, pretty good. What would you add to that, Sarah? Um, I think I'd just add that change management can never be isolated or insular. So, because mm. the nature of the change, especially with ERPs, tend to be company wide, I think it doesn't necessarily matter where you're sat. Obviously, you know, you need to have buy-in from that particular department. But say, for example, your change management, you know, your line is sat in the IT department. I think it's really important that you have sponsors or leaders in other departments uh, within the company that are bought in. So that when you're trying to deliver something that maybe isn't kind of in the IT swim lane, 
you've got an advocate in the other business areas to support you with that. Because otherwise what happens is you try to do, you know, deliver something or, or achieve something in a different swim lane and nobody gets it. Nobody gets why you're doing it. And then the IT might get a bit annoyed. You're stepping out of the swim lane. So you kind of need to have this, um, as Julia said, this model that's kind of spread out across the, the organization. And it, it links to something I mentioned earlier about your sort of change agent network, this sort of, you know, coalition of change it has to be people kind of the bottom rung but also at that leadership level so you know somebody to have your back and have your um agenda front of mind when you're going into these different kind of scenarios that's really important yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know you have to think about the you talked earlier about change impact and some of the readiness activities that need to happen i mean you have to figure out who's going to do this stuff and who's most qualified to do it and how can you organize it in a way that's integrated and part of part of the team um, do you see that? What, I'm curious to hear your perspectives on this and maybe we start with you, Sarah, since you brought it up, but do you see it more often than not that the change team, there's a, there's a tendency to want to have a separate change team, separate work stream that's off in a silo doing its own thing, or have you had, have you seen pretty good intuition or success from organizations that want to integrate change management into the program? I, again, I think it's so varied. I can think of examples that, that you know, experience from both sides. I think sometimes the danger is, is if you've got a change team and say you've got a change director, director of change, who isn't a change manager at heart, is in maybe they're more of a program director, that can kind of derail um, that, that change um, ethos almost. Um, and I think then you tend to kind of go into a siloed work stream where everybody's kind of, you know, heads down, not really talking to anybody else. But I think if you've got a leader of said change team, that's really proactive in kind of brokering those relationships on behalf of the change team. That's where it really works. Somebody at the top advocating for that, you know, getting you a seat at the table at these meetings you need to be at. Otherwise, the danger is, yeah, you just kind of stick in your swim lane, go around and around in circles, and then you put your head up 18 months later and don't know what's going on around you, you know, yeah. um, which is it's a terrible place to be. <laughs> right. Yeah, you've got mass chaos on your hands and uh, the, the wildfires have spread, as you, as you yeah. said earlier. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Julia? Anything you'd add to that? Um, no, I think, to be honest, I think Sarah's covered everything that I wanted to say there, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, good, yeah. uh, good, good response. I guess just to, to uh, well, let me get one, one more comment here, too, before I move on to my next question. Uh, this is from Shanice on LinkedIn. It says, completely agree. Sarah, change agents are vital to delivering successful change. So um, thank you for that, for that feedback, uh, Shanice. And I, I agree with, with both of you as well. Um, so I, I guess just to sort of wrap this all up and to, to tie this all together, everything we've talked about so far, um, what what sort of closing advice or tips do you have for organizations and project teams that are about to start either their change management initiative within an S4HANA implementation or they're just starting an S4HANA journey? How do you, how do they get started? Because we've talked we've covered a lot of ground, right? There's a lot of stuff that can fall into change management. There's a lot of stuff that should fall into change management. What's the best way to get started to really give us something tangible that we can sort of springboard into our change program. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Julia. Um, I would say, first of all, okay, so there's two different models here is model number one, obviously the best option is to is to have a change manager there to, to do that work for you and to work with you. If that's not available, um, I would say if you, somebody else is doing that role, the key thing to do is to, is, is to make sure that you understand the change. So very first thing up front, I would say, is do you have an agreed vision? Do you understand what everybody's getting at the end? Something they can buy into, sell. Um, so what's the selling point? 
does everybody agree what that is? If not, get one because your change trying to sell that isn't going to be successful if nobody is kind of if no one knows what the box on the jigsaw looks like. Secondly, is it looking at your people? Is that change impact assessment? What processes, and I'm not saying it's easy, but which processes are, and again, you'll be working with potentially the business analysts to do this, but which processes are in scope um, and how people are impacted in that. And that will help you understand, even if it's just, not saying just training, but if the, if the only thing that you have the ability, stroke budget, stroke capability to do is training, at least then you're making sure that the right people get trained on the right things. That's the thing that I would say. But obviously, you know, having a business change manager would do all of those things with their expertise and more and cover all of those things. Have those conversations with sponsors for you, understand resistance um, and um, and help you through that journey. Right. How about you, Sarah? What would you what would you add as far as getting started on the S4 HANA and or change management journey? Um, I think in addition to that, because obviously that's really important what Julie's just said is and this is a really simple one but have a plan <laughs> um so it goes for you know if you you've got a change team or a change manager or maybe somebody else who's trying to do the change management journey for you because you know resources etc having a, a good robust plan that you stick to obviously you know things do change um I think it's really important quite a lot of the time you know you've got your project plan in kind of um you know MS project or whatever it is um, it looks great, but change management sometimes just a tiny little swim lane in that. I think it's really important that you take that plan and actually build your own change management version. So things don't get missed because it's so complicated and there's so many things you need to remember. Having it all written down and sort of presenting it back to the project team on a weekly basis just keeps you honest with it. Um, and it gives people the chance to go, oh, you know, maybe we've missed something or have you thought about that and, and kind of opens those conversations up. So, yeah, really early on, get a plan together um, and monitor it throughout. Don't just go right plan, done, tick and, and you know, never revisit it. Um, yeah. Kind of one of these live documents that you have to have throughout. Yeah. 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 Makes makes total sense. And I, you know, I think along those lines, too, you know, one thing we've seen work and I, I know the three of us have worked together, you know, third stage on this, too is just doing that organizational readiness assessment up front to sort of yeah. a precursor to the change impact assessment that you talked about, yeah. that you both have talked about throughout this conversation. Change impact is once you get into the the specific and more detailed process changes that are going to affect yeah. people. And that's typically, you know, a bit down the path of implementation. But even before you start the implementation, doing an organizational readiness assessment to say, Definitely. this is the culture, this is where the pockets of resistance are likely to, to be, and sort of trying to anticipate how big this change is going to be and how the organization is going to respond to it. So you can put together that plan that you guys talk about. Um, mm. You know, that's something you could do right away is organizational assessment leading to the overall plan and strategy that you're yeah. going to deploy as part of your implementation. Yeah. yeah. I think that that also helps you with risks as well, because they're, therefore yeah. you can point out what the risks are. Um, if there's a, a program raid or a project raid, those feed into that. And at least then there, that will help them get fed up to, um, to board level or to sponsor level. And they, they appear as you know they, they, they might have been messed off otherwise but yes that's absolutely important absolutely essential you know i'll add one more follow-up bonus question here um so what about i'm an executive say i'm an executive here i'm an executive sponsor i'm listening to this conversation and i think yeah this all sounds great um change management i can see why it's why it's important to most organizations but our team is really excited about this change i mean we just picked s4 hana we're just getting started on the project and i'm looking around and everyone's pretty excited so i don't think change is going to be a problem for us 
but I get it why over, it's important for everyone else. So what would you say to that executive that, that has that mindset, which we, we often see? I think I'd say that it's very easy to be excited at the start of the project, but as time goes on and sort of, um, you know, things come up that are unexpected that might cause a bit more chaos than you anticipated or people get change fatigue, all this kind of stuff. If you haven't got that kind of experienced change management person to help guide you through those situations, I think that excitement can quite quickly turn into resentment. Um, and you kind of get these people who are getting really frustrated and go, oh, you know, I'm done with this. So I, I think... Yes, it's really good if your organisation is very excited, but you've got to keep that momentum up. And in order to do that, I think you need a good change management strategy in place. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, I mean, it's the expertise to be guided through that change yeah. by somebody that is an expert in that particular capability. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you, Sarah and Julia. Great conversation and uh, a lot of really good stuff. A lot of meaty stuff we talked about there from a change perspective. Uh, we're going to dive into some of those concepts and, and debrief here in just a moment. We're also going to shift gears and talk about uh, five key takeaways or lessons from ERP failures and lawsuits. So we're going to take that from the perspective of our expert witness practice and some of the things we've learned in those expert witness engagements. So stick around. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organisations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Transformation Ground Control, episode number 160. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also view past episodes at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting Group, an independent digital transformation and ERP consulting firm, and it's produced by Major Tom Productions. Um, so, Darian, we just had uh, Sarah and Julia on the show talking about organizational change and some of their lessons and tips and things of that nature. What were some of your takeaways or questions that you had after hearing their conversation? Yeah, I think it was a great conversation, really good, insightful takes during it. What do you think about how can companies get started in organizational change and what should they, what, what should their first steps be for that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's a, it's a lot of what we, we alluded to throughout the conversation, but I think, you know, if I were to sort of back up and just say, here's, here are the key steps to get started. I mean, the first thing would be the organizational readiness assessment that we talked about in the conversation where, um, and I talked about it at a super high level. I didn't really get into the details of what that is, but generally speaking, an organizational readiness assessment is meant to not just ask people, are you ready for the change or are you excited about this project? Because most of the time people are going to say yes, and that doesn't really help you. But instead what we do is we try to uncover and unpack, um, 
you know, what's the communication style of the organization? What's the culture? What's, what are people's perceptions of leadership? Um, how collaborative is the organization? How, just how open to change or how, how much change experience in comfort with change does this organization have? And it's not either or answers. You're trying to gauge on a, on a spectrum or a continuum how, how difficult change will be for this particular organization. And it's not just how difficult will change be for this organization. It's how difficult is it going to be for different parts of the organization? So you might have different departments or different locations that have different um, issues or cultural nuances and um, openness or resistance to change. And you almost want to develop sort of a heat map of understanding where the pockets of resistance are going to be so that then you can do a second thing, which is really important, is to create that change management strategy and plan, which is based on the organizational assessment you did. You don't want to come in and just do a sort of a generic boilerplate, one-size-fits-all change management plan because that's not going to work. So you do that change readiness assessment. You create a tailored or more surgical prescriptive change management strategy and plan that's, that fits your specific situation. And then ultimately that change plan needs to become part of the overall implementation plan, which is why you want to do all this stuff up front. You don't want to wait until you're halfway through the project and then decide what your change management plan is going to be because by then you don't have the time or the resources, the budget to do change management well. So you want to do it you know, early on as, as quickly as you can. So those are just a couple of the things I would do is change readiness assessment. Um, based on that change readiness assessment, do the change management strategy and plan. And then I guess a third one, which comes shortly after the change strategy and plan, would be the, the change impact assessment, which we talked a lot about with Julie and Sarah. They both mentioned that you know several times, the value of change impact assessments and really understanding more specifically what the changes are, who's going to be affected by it, how big of a change it is, and ultimately you help those people overcome those hurdles and those those areas of change. So that'd be three things I'd say would be the best way to get started on your on your change journey there. Definitely. I think one question I have from that is when you are feeling this big resistance to change management and you create a plan then to go about that, what do you do when somebody is still or a group of people or a section in a company is still really resisting against that change? How do you approach that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, generally speaking, you you want to, first of all, understand, you know, understand why it is they're they're resisting it. Chances are pretty high if it's a whole group or a whole department or a whole location that's resisting something. Chances are pretty high that there's some there's some there's there's something real there. You know, it's not just one person who's difficult to manage or one person that's acting out of line. If you have a, a group of people that are that are pushing back, there's a reason for it, and so you have to understand what that reason is. What's really interesting is most of the time, more often than not, the reason for the resistance is based on misunderstanding or misperception or just a lack of clarity. I mean, that's usually all it is. Um, usually if you just clarify what the change is or how it's going to affect people, um, just the fact that you gave them the clarity, even if it's not necessarily 100% positive, the change that as it affects people, um, at least they understand it now and they don't make up their own answers. When people have to make up their own answers and their own explanation for why things are changing or how things are going to change, they're going to assume the worst. I don't know why, because it's how humans are, I suppose. But um, that's just, it's sort of like gravity pulls you down to that worst case scenario as an organization. And so you have to, you have to clarify that for people. Um, and, and again, I'd, I'd say the number one source of change resistance is just lack of understanding, lack of clarity, misunderstanding, um, all that good stuff. So that's what I'd say to that. I'm excited now to discuss the fa big fa ERP system failures and the lawsuit 
that we're going to touch on with this next YouTube video. So yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, change management is a number one reason why or is a leading reason why change ma or why ERP implementations and digital transformations fail. And we recently published a video um, on my YouTube channel that talks about five key takeaways from our expert witness practice. And, you know, we looked at all the lawsuits and ERP failures we'd been asked to either uh, remediate and or testify in court on. And we, we uncovered five key patterns that are very consistent. One of those is change management. So I don't want to give away the whole video, but that, that is one of the five things we're going to talk about is change management. So it is a natural segue into this, this next segment. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to share with you the five reasons why uh, ERP implementations most commonly fail, as well as uh, the, the common reasons why they get to the lawsuit stage. So we're going to talk about those five things here in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 160. My name is Eric Kimberling here at Darian Fiakuski, and you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is produced by Major Tom Productions, sponsored by Third Stage Consulting, an independent and technology agnostic consulting advisor that helps clients with digital transformations, including software selection and implementation. And another service we provide is expert witness uh, testimony, which is part of what, uh, which is sort of a segue into this conversation here on this last segment of today's show, where we're going to talk about lessons from ERP failures and lawsuits. So we're going to unpack, you know, what are those five key reasons why projects fail and five key reasons why they get to the lawsuit stage. Whole idea being, let's avoid those things. Let's not do those things. And let's do the opposite of what these, these organizations do um, that, that find themselves in these sort of dire straits. So let's roll the clip here. This is a YouTube video I recently published on my, I, on my YouTube channel. Let's roll the clip and we'll come back and discuss it here in just a moment. This is five key lessons from ERP failures and lawsuits. One of the service offerings we provide our clients is expert witness testimony services. So in other words, lawyers will hire us to write reports, to testify in court and get deposed and provide expertise around why a lawsuit happened and why a project failed. So what my team and I do during these sorts of engagements is that we will analyze in sort of a forensic way an entire project to figure out what exactly happened along the way and how the project failed. It means that we go through all the emails that were exchanged on the project. We look at all the status reports, the steering committee updates, the contracts with the original software vendor and the system implementer. We look at all the artifacts and deliverables that are created throughout a project. And in short, what we do is we recreate the timeline and recreate the story of what happened so that we can explain how the project failed and then the attorneys fight over whose fault it was and they sue each other for a lot of money. So what I want to do today is talk about what are the 
five main things that I've learned from lawsuits. Having been an expert witness for over 50 different ERP lawsuits over the years, there's five common themes that I see in each of these lawsuits. So my goal here today is not to suggest that you might get sued someday and this is what to expect, but instead what I want to do is share some of the patterns that we see in failures so that you can avoid some of those same challenges as you go through your ERP implementation. So if you do find yourself in a lawsuit, we can certainly provide expert witness testimony. But more importantly, if you're looking to avoid some of these challenges, it's something that my team and I can help with as well in making sure that you mitigate some of the risks along the way. Before we dive too far into today's content, I want to invite you to learn a little bit more about Third Stage Consulting, who we are and what we do. I've included a link to a video right here that describes Third Stage in a bit more detail. It talks about our story, our history, our philosophy, our clients, our service offerings, and that sort of thing. But in general, what Third Stage Consulting does is we're an independent and tech agnostic consulting provider. We help clients through their entire digital transformation life cycles, beginning with digital strategy, software evaluation and selection, all the way through and including implementation planning, implementation readiness, and the actual implementation itself. We're technology agnostic, so we only represent our clients' best interests. We do not represent software vendors. But having said that, we work very closely with software vendors, all the leading players that you can imagine we've worked with both in helping clients evaluate and select them, but also in helping clients implement those solutions as well. So we have a very broad objective agnostic view of the market that is meant to really represent your interest as you go through your digital transformation. I also encourage you to scan this QR code right here to get access to our resource center. This resource center has a ton of information, ton of eBooks that are free. You have access to top 10 software rankings, playbooks for how to make your project more successful, guides to change management, YouTube videos, all kinds of stuff that are gonna help you through your digital transformation. So I encourage you to scan this QR code to get access to those resources. And please feel free to reach out to me directly to brainstorm ideas about your project. Even if it's just informally, you wanna bounce around some ideas and get some informal advice, I'd be happy to spend some time with you. So feel free to reach out to me. I've included my contact information below. You can also find it in the description field of this video as well. One of the most common patterns we see in ERP software lawsuits is the fact that multiple parties involved in the project had unrealistic expectations from the start. In other words, they started the project down a path that was unrealistic. Either it was an unrealistic timeline, an unrealistic estimate of what the cost was going to be, unrealistic estimate of what the resource commitment would be, unrealistic view of what the software can and can't do. Unrealistic expectations of some sort can doom a project from the start because what ends up happening is when you draw a line in the sand and put a stake in the ground and say, this is what our project's going to look like. This is how much we're going to spend. This is how much time it's going to take. This is what we're going to get out of the project. When you draw that line in the sand, you build an entire plan and strategy around those assumptions. And when those assumptions are wrong, it means that you're completely flying blind in terms of how you implement. So for example, a lot of times what happens is software vendors and implementation technical partners will come to an organization, to a CIO or whoever it is, and say, we have a proposal for you of how we can deploy your software in let's just say 12 months. We can deploy our software to your organization in 12 months. You'll be fully functional. This is all the stuff our software can do. This is the value you'll get out of it, et cetera, et cetera. That's their job is to sell you. But along the way, what's happening is they're selling you an unrealistic vision in many cases, because oftentimes, while it may be true that 12 months is a realistic timeline for some organizations, it may be that it is not realistic for your organization. It might be that 18 months was the number it was always going to be, but the fact that they sold you on a vision of 12 months means that now you've built a plan that was unrealistic to begin with, and you're operating with the house of cards, for lack of a better word. 
So having realistic expectations up front is really important. And one of the best ways you can cut through the noise and cut through the fiction of proposals and the sales process that create these unrealistic expectations is you can hire an independent tech agnostic third party to help you plan for your project, to help you negotiate with these software vendors so that you have a third party advisor that doesn't have any skin in the game and they have nothing to gain from you making a bad decision. But however you decide to tackle it, you wanna make sure you start with realistic expectations because when you have unrealistic expectations, it leads to a lot of bad decisions later on that can create a lot of challenges that are hard to recover from. Another common pattern we see with ERP software lawsuits is that organizations don't have a clear vision of what it is they want their future state to look like. They don't understand or have a good vision or a good articulation of what their operating model is going to be, how they want to structure the organization, how they want to improve their business. And oftentimes what they do is they hide behind this concept of just go find the technology and the technology will tell you how to run your business. And that's just simply not true and it's not realistic. So much of today's software is so flexible that you have lots of different options in terms of how you can deploy even the simplest business process. So you have to have a pretty good vision of what it is you want out of the software. What are the showstoppers? What are the things you can live with or without? And that lack of clarity, if you don't have that, leads to a lot of problems later on because now you're shooting in the dark, you're spinning your wheels. You expect a project team to guess and figure out what they think the organization should look like in the future. And oftentimes, more often than not, that's gonna be misaligned with the reality of what executives want. So you wanna make sure that you take the time upfront before you even start implementing software. You wanna make sure that you take the time to define what your future state's gonna look like, both in terms of the operating model, the way the business processes are gonna work, the way you're gonna be organized, and ultimately the way you're gonna use technology to improve your business. And what this does when you invest that time upfront is that it allows you to spend a little bit more time to make sure you've got a clear roadmap and a clear blueprint so that you can actually speed up the product overall and what we found is the companies that rush past that phase of implementation planning and future state clarity, when they rush through that or gloss over it altogether, they end up failing along the way. And most, if not all, of the expert witness engagements that I've been involved with and that my team's been involved with demonstrated this same pattern. If there's one thing I could pick out that has been a consistent pattern in every single ERP software expert witness engagement that my team and I have been involved with, it's the fact that the projects didn't focus enough time and energy on organizational change. In other words, they didn't focus on the human component of change, and they spent too much time and money on the technology pieces of the transformation. And the reason this is so important and so telling is because oftentimes it's not the software that fails in these lawsuits. When we go through these lawsuits or are testifying on behalf of these lawsuits, there's a lot of fighting between the opposing parties that typically will say on one side that the software doesn't work. The client was sold a bill of goods, the software didn't do what was advertised, that sort of thing. On the other side, the implementing organization or the client, the end client, will often say, you lied to a software vendor, you didn't tell us what your software could and couldn't do, or you didn't have a realistic plan to begin with, or you didn't give us the best resources to help us through the project. And one of the things that often comes out of it is that organizations will fight over whose responsibility it is to do the organizational change management piece. Typically, software vendors will do some limited end-user training, but then they rely on you, the implementing organization, to do the train-the-trainer approach to where you actually go train your employees in mass. And that's okay. That's a, that's a way to start, but there's a lot more to change management than just end-user training, and that's where a lot of organizations struggle. And in every single lawsuit that we've testified on behalf of, 
we've seen the same phenomena where there just wasn't enough effort on organizational change management. Now, whose fault it is, whose responsibility it is, really depends on how you structured your contracts. But you want to make sure that you look past the typical end user training and the basic communication type stuff that software vendors and system integrators or implementers will do and really look to how can we manage change better than organizations that have been through a lawsuit like the ones we're talking about here today. The fourth big challenge we see in ERP software lawsuits is poor program management and controls. In other words, there isn't anyone on the team that's objectively, agnostically, and effectively managing the entire program. And note that I use the word program management, not project management, because most software vendors do provide project managers that will manage that one work stream within an overall project. But typically what they don't do is they don't manage the overall program, the multiple work streams, things like data migration, organizational change, the process improvement, the integration, the architecture between different systems, the decommissioning of legacy systems. There's a lot of moving parts in an overall project and typically your software vendor involved in your ERP implementation is just handling one myopic work stream within that overall program. Now, if you'd like to learn more on this, I actually have a whiteboard video where I dive into what exactly program management is versus project management. I think that'll help you unpack and uncover what I'm talking about here in a little bit more detail. You can watch the video right here on my YouTube channel. I describe that in a lot more detail. But the point here is that you want to make sure you have the right program management and the right controls in place and that you're not just simply outsourcing the program management function to your software vendor or to your implementation partner. Because again, typically they're only focused on one work stream and quite frankly, they're typically not that good at project management or program management. So it's incumbent on you, the end client, to make sure that you shore up that lack of competency and build some sort of program management and ERP expertise in-house that can help you manage the project better. And that's something that we help our clients with every day is helping them build out that PMO, help them manage the program management of the overall project to ensure that they're successful. Now, the fifth common pattern we see in ERP software lawsuits is not so much that the software itself doesn't work, but that the software is not aligned with the business processes and vice versa. So in other words, there's a disconnect between the way the operations can or should work and the way the software works and that doesn't get reconciled in time, you go live with the system and no matter what, you're gonna fail if you have that severe misalignment between business and technology. Now there's a couple of different ways you can handle this. I mean, one is to change the software to fit your business and say that we are gonna customize, we're gonna modify, we're gonna do whatever we need to do to change the software to fit our business. Or we can say we're gonna change the business to fit the software, the way the software works out of the box. Now obviously this is a age old debate that never really gets resolved and it's a lot easier said than done to pick one side or the other. But the reality is most organizations end up with a sort of hybrid. They have some business processes that they know are competitive advantages and they're gonna force the software to fit the business. There's gonna be other parts of their business where it's not a source of competitive advantage. There's no reason for them to be different and they're gonna fit the business into the software rather than the other way around. But the key here is that organizations that don't have a clear vision and clear understanding of what it is they're trying to accomplish and how they're gonna reconcile the difference between business and technology is something that software failures and lawsuits struggle with even more so than most organizations. Now to add one more layer to this, oftentimes you're gonna run into this problem even if you've picked the perfect software for your organization or at least as close to perfect as you can get. Some organizations just pick completely the wrong technology and it's just not a good fit. But I will say that that's usually not the case. Usually the software fit is at least okay. 
And that's usually not the biggest source of the problem. The bigger problem was that there wasn't that reconciliation that needed to happen between business and technology. So no matter how severe the situation is or not, you can expect that there is going to be misalignment between business and technology. The key is how do you reconcile that in your project? So these are the five big takeaways and lessons that I have from having helped over 50 different organizations through their software lawsuits as an expert witness. And if you'd like to brainstorm more with our expert witness team or myself, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to brainstorm how we can support your project. Even if you're not in the lawsuit phase, if you're in the midst of an implementation that perhaps is getting off rail or getting off track, we're happy to brainstorm ideas on how you can get it back on track so you don't end up in a lawsuit phase. And certainly if you are in a lawsuit right now, we'd love to chat with you about how we can support you in your legal efforts as an expert witness. So those are our five key takeaways and lessons from ERP failures and lawsuits. We're going to debrief and cover a couple other points here in just a moment, but first we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 160. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Darian Fiakuski. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. The show is sponsored by Third Stage Consulting and produced by Major Tom Productions. So, Darian, what were some of your questions, comments, or thoughts on that uh, five key lessons and takeaways video? Yeah, I think one point that really stood out to me was towards the end of the video when you were talking about usually a software and a company can fit together and it, that's not usually the problem. Like that's just where it's just where the rec reconciliation of business and technology and there's a misalignment there and that's what really causes the issue. It's not necessarily that the software can't work with that company. And so I just wanted you to maybe expand on that further. Like, it's very interesting to me that these big lawsuits happen for a lot of money, but these software and the company could potentially work together some of the time. So what what stage does it get to when they are at a lawsuit and they can't go back, I guess, anymore? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's um, it's hard to say every situation is a, a bit different, but I, I think the reason why the software sometimes works for some organizations and not for others is, is really the way the projects are managed. I mean, it's, it's typically not, I mean, it's, it's fairly rare or relatively rare that we go into a, a lawsuit to provide expert witness testimony, or we go into a project recovery mode, which a lot of clients, we have a lot of clients that hire us at the beginning to help with the, with the implementation to, to begin with. We have other clients that try it on their own and they have trouble along the way. And then they hire us to come sort of fix it and get it back on track. And then the more extreme examples are the ones where they've tried, they failed, they got to a lawsuit and then we come in and, and help testify. Um, my hope is that everyone listening here today or no one here listening today needs us for the expert witness stuff because if you just hire us to do the other stuff earlier, it's a lot cheaper and more effective and less chaos and heartache if you, if you do it that way. Um, but the reasons we find that some organizations succeed, some fail with the same technologies, it usually isn't because the technology is somehow flawed or even 
in many cases, it's it's not even because the software is not a good fit. Oftentimes, it, it is a good fit or could be a good fit for the organization. It just it wasn't deployed correctly. They 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 missed a lot of things along the way. They didn't manage the project well. The system integrator um, sort of took over the project, and they lost the organization lost control of the system integrator, and then they end up suing the system integrator because you know they they you know basically treated it like an open checkbook or whatever. So those are some of the main reasons why some companies succeed and some fail with the same exact software technology. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think another question I have from this is the aftermath of the lawsuit. So when these big lawsuits happen, could you provide some insights maybe to what ramifications the organizations maybe face after such big failures or what their reputation in that industry ends up being kind of after these really big lawsuits? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, or a great question, because a lot of times organizations will have a couple things happen. One is there's if they're a publicly traded company, oftentimes their stock price will drop, especially if if, if it's a big enough failure. Um, even if it's not a failure where it's like in a lawsuit stage, if you're a publicly traded company and you're bleeding money, spending all this money on a failed or failing ERP implementation, you're required to disclose that to to investors. So oftentimes you'll see these um, these public um, what are they called the um, drawn a blank the reports that companies put out to the regulators to uh, financial re- reports that's a pretty simple word I don't know why I forgot it uh, but the, when they have their financial reports they have to put out they have to in those statements they have to talk about material risks and things that investors need to know otherwise they could get sued for misleading investors if they don't tell the investors that they have this big massive money pit of an ERP implementation that you know, has no end in sight. They have to disclose that. So it's interesting when you read these financial results or the financial reports from some of these big publicly traded companies and they talk about their ERP implementations and how much they're struggling. Here's what they're doing to fix it, et cetera. So it can definitely affect your stock price. It can affect, certainly affects your profitability. Um, if you, if you, uh, you know, spend too much money on the project, you're going to end up losing money as a company. And I think the biggest long-term damage is potentially with customers. You know, if your customers see that you're implementing a new system and you're struggling with it, they're going to get nervous and, and start to hedge, and they're going to go look for other alternatives, at least as a backup. In some cases, they start acting on that Plan B just because they don't want to be they don't want to be affected by your by your uh, failure. And in some ways, too, I guess I'd say that it could also affect your ability to go procure new ERP software in the future. If you end up pulling the plug on one software and then you go try and buy a new one and go try to go through a new implementation, it's going to be harder to find partners that are willing to work with you if you've, if you've had this massive failure. So there's a lot of collateral damage in addition to just the short-term financial and morale issues that it causes for sure. Yeah. So basically avoid getting to that stage and higher third stage to help you out beforehand. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. It's it's a lot cheaper to to avoid the failure than it is to fix a failure. You know, that's what we always tell clients. So if it takes you a little bit extra time or you spend a little bit extra money just getting it right up front and making sure you have a solid plan and you've got the right partners in place and that you are operating at a tempo with a strategy that makes sense for your organization, that's going to be money well spent that's going to save you exponentially more in the future, especially when it comes to, to risk as well. So. And yes, third stage can help. We're we're independent. We're tech agnostic. We don't sell software, so all our, all we care about is making sure our clients succeed in whatever technologies they do or don't deploy. So, uh, good stuff. Well, well, thank you for for those uh, observations and for uh, the great content here today, Darian. And thank you to the audience for the great questions and and uh, 
whatnot. We appreciate that, and we appreciate the guests uh, being on the show today as well. Sarah and Julia, thank you for your uh, involvement. And, uh, again, new episodes of this show every Wednesday at TransformationGroundControl.com. Uh, show is produced by Major Tom Productions and sponsored by Third Stage Consulting. So be sure to, to check out both companies uh, at your leisure. Uh, we will see you next week on Transformation Ground Control. In the meantime, have a great week, and we'll see you next time. 